Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's the Autosport Podcast. We reveal the secrets of historic motorsport, both its joys and its controversies. Historic motorsport is one of the most thriving areas of, of motor racing worldwide, particularly in Britain, where there's a there's a massive industry surrounding it. Huge number of events, very very popular with the crowd. Not just with the the events like the Goodwood Revival, but there's there's just about every weekend there's a good historic event on somewhere in the UK or uh, or in Europe. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about some of the the secrets of historic motorsport, what makes it so popular, what uh, what it takes to to be involved with it, and some of the challenges it faces. Because like all forms of motorsport it's not quite as simple as uh, just put the cars on the track and race i'm your host ed stewart and joining me to uh, to, to offer this insight into historic motorsport very well appointed uh, panel first we have simon hadfield who's worked in historic motorsport for a very long time probably one of the, the longest established companies running historic racing cars in the uk obviously a very accomplished driver in your own right well i started in 1981 um, and for better or worse, uh, been immersed in it ever since. 
also recording this podcast off the off the back of a decent weekend. Uh, very much so. We had uh, we had cars in Magnicor, which were very successful. We had quite a variety of car at Brands Hatch as well. Um, happy customers, everything finished. It's always easier in nice weather. That's very very true. Very true. Although perhaps the weather went beyond nice and uh, sort of crested over and went into a little bit too hot. It, it was a it was a it was brutal. Let's not um, um, mess about. When you're 40 degrees ambient, the circuit's 54 degrees surface temperature. And the coolest part of the car that we could identify was 54 degrees internally. Yeah, I mean, you've, you've worked for it. Yeah, absolutely. That's, uh, yeah, particularly, I imagine Manny Core in particular, because France was, was ridiculously uh, warm. Also joining me is Autosport editor Kevin Turner, a man who lives in the past. So that makes you uh, ideal for, uh, for historic motorsport. You do wish it was still 1927, don't you? Oh, that's very unfair. No, I think, uh, well, I, th- I, I would quite like to have lived through the 60s and 70s from a motorsport point of view. But uh, I, I enjoy the present, the future and the past. But today, obviously, the focus is on, focus is on the historics. Absolutely. And uh, my final guest is, is Matt Q, also a, uh, an enthusiast for historic, historic motorsports, outside of your, your kind of regular beat of the British Touring Car Championship. Very, very different world. But obviously, uh, the youngest member of this, uh, of this podcast by some, some margin. So uh, you're, you're not the obvious profile for a historic racing enthusiast. Well, I figured it was just because you don't like me, because you're really reluctant to have me on these uh, Autosport podcasts, and I know you're keen for them to have a bit more of a cut and thrust and a lively debate, so I aim to be deliberately obtuse and argumentative through through this podcast, Ed. So the Scott Mitchell role, then? <laughs> I, I want to I want to take back my position. <laughs> <laughs> no, the Scott Mitchell role is to complain about being very tired, which, in fairness, normally at 1am on, on, uh, on Sunday night. If that, if that time works after a Grand Prix, you can't necessarily blame him for. So, historic motorsport, uh, Simon, why are you, why did you get involved in it? Because obviously you worked in contemporary motorsport, um, running single-seaters, that, that, that kind of thing. And then you kind of moved into this almost before historic race, certainly before historic racing was as big as, it, as it's got over the past 20 years. So what, what led to that and what was the appeal that means you've made it your, your life, really? A, a large part of it is money. I've never, ever paid to drive a racing car. Uh, morally, I could not bring myself to do so. Um, when I started, I was looked on as being something a bit odd. I was by some way the youngest person in most of the historic paddocks. And I'm not a, a, a sort of a trailblazer. But I think people suddenly saw that it was a, a proper place to play. I had no idea, as many people in historics, rules were formed and so on the historic racing would end up where it is today. Nobody foresaw that. So I did it because it was fun. I could afford it. My first car was a Lotus which I drove on the road. I drove to the circuit. I tried hard not to crash it enough that I couldn't drive it home. And people saw me driving that. And that opened the door with someone else. And the sort of the the ball kept rolling. And my business grew alongside that too. When I was working in modern motorsport, then current you know, uh, contemporary motorsport, I didn't want to race myself. It's just the, the emotion isn't enough. But as soon as I stopped uh, working in that, then it's it's been since middle of 1981, this is where I am. An amazing growth in that period. We should say, Kev, actually, actually you, could, you could put into context Simon's contribution, also behind the wheel, a very accomplished driver who's raced all sorts of things. You're probably, rather than getting Simon to talk about himself in that regard, you're perhaps better to uh, introduce him to those unfamiliar with, with the name. 
Well, yes. I mean, Mar- Marcus Pye in the first uh, All Sport Historic Supplement that we did last year picked out the top 20 historic drivers in the world and, and Simon was on the list, quite rightly. Um, and I would say, I get the three names that immediately come to my mind of people that have been in historic racing a long time. They're kind of the benchmark drivers as well as preparers are Simon, Gary Pearson and Martin Stretton. They're the three that really, like historic's got me into motor racing. I watch the Grand Prix at the weekends and, and, and in between go to historic meetings with my dad. And those are the three guys that you'd see at the front and quite often fighting each other or whoever. And they also provide the benchmarks for the young guys. We'll probably get onto this a bit later, but historic racing now has a lot of either young drivers who can't afford to continue in the sort of contemporary scene or who just you know want to follow in their father's footsteps or whatever um or pros you know we've got some pros coming in and they and they come in and 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 you know simon gary martin are three of those that have are still at the front irrespective of all these pros and young guys coming in um and of course you know we'll probably say one of the top preparers in the world as well but um yeah my my personal interest has been watching watching cars driven properly and that's that's what you get with the guys at the front well that's the interesting thing isn't it you, you do increasingly see and it varies depending on where you're watching and also what part of the world. But the when you see the cars actually driven quickly, that's when they kind of come alive, isn't it? Because it's, it's always nice when you see a car being demoed, but I always find it a little bit disappointing when you see someone in in something that might be fantastic, but pootling along at 50 miles an hour, not really being driven. But when they're actually being raced, sliding around, moving, you can see that, that drivers are really pushing. Without question. A, a racing car in a museum is, is cute, but it's dead. A racing car and a race circuit being used competently is a special thing. It's the way that's referenced now. I think, again, we'll we'll talk about that later. But if you can find the famous Jim Clark's Lotus in a barn and you can take it out and clean it and sit in it and sat where he sat, that for me is everything. You know, to, to try and have this glimpse under the curtain of what your heroes did. That, that that really is the bottom line. That's the most driving part of it for me. Well, I should maybe bring Matt Hewitt in here because there's an element of nostalgia there, isn't there? But obviously you're young and I only remember three weeks ago because of, because of your age. So for, for some, of, some of this, there's always a kind of a cutoff point, isn't there? I always think that you, you see motorsport that's in your lifetime when you've been able to follow it differently to what, what comes before. Anything before is kind of a, an exercise in history, which I do find fascinating. But if you haven't, I never saw Jim Clark race, for example. So I have a great interest in that. But it, it's not the same as, say, you know, seeing uh, Alan Prost race or something. Like that. You know, they're real drivers, should we, should we say. So how do you see it, given that you you have such a short, uh, short memory? Well, because I've not lived through any of the periods of historic racing that I like, whether it's the 50s sports cars or the touring cars, for me, that's one of the best things about it because right now I know what it's like to live in the most modern minute with the most contemporary Formula One cars. But then we can go to meetings like the Silverstone Classic, Goodwood, and by and large, you get you know the nostalgia. You get to experience what racing would have been like. Yes, cars have been developed, and we'll come on to that. But you get to have the best of both worlds because you you know take a step back in time to use a cliche and see how those cars behaved. You know, with the older tires, the older components, and and sort of revel in you know a, a, a different era but then likewise you can come back home from revival stick on a grand prix and then watch hybrid technology so it's not that to like historic racing you can't like any other forms i think you know you should sort of celebrate that both coexist and both are in de- pretty sort of decent health at the minute 
Uh, yeah, I think that's fair. And I think you've got two levels to it. You've got the the sort of what you'd call personal nostalgia. So most people's favourite eras are when they came to something, whether that's music, sport, whatever, normally in their teens. So if you did a poll in the office, you would find that it tallies quite quite close to that. So I think that's why you see historic motorsport, the popular bits of it move forward as the people get wealthy enough and get to a position where they can go and buy the racing car they saw when they were of that age. It moves through 50s, 60s, 70s, you know. It, group C and then into super touring. I mean, it's hard to think of a super touring car as a historic car, but it, but but they are now. They're in historic racing and and that moves along. But there's also the the what you're talking about, Ed, which is the kind of historical interest. So uh, I I I like to see cars that I ne- I never saw at the time. You know, two of my Silverstone classic highlights, if you like. One was uh, Nicholas Manassian driving the XTR 14, which is a car I did see as a kid and is still one of my favourite racing cars. And I remember standing with someone saying, oh, I hope he doesn't, because he's on pole by a mile, Group C race, I hope he doesn't, you know, he plays. I, I don't, I hope he gets on with it. I want to see this car driven properly. And he did, he was about eight seconds clear in the first lap. But just watching that one car driven driven brilliantly was great and then seeing Gary Pearson driving the 917 at the Classic as well I never got to see race in period um, yeah, it does It does both those it does the personal nostalgia and the kind of historical link as well but there's a, there's a trifecta of issues happening in the beginning of the 90s we get carbon and no one's absolutely sure about the long term um, issues with carbon it's bonding the way loads are fed into it some is very good. Some was really poor. The second is electronics, because we can't control electronics. They couldn't control it in a period, and you certainly can't control it in historic racing. And the third part is one-make racing. If it wasn't one-make racing, Formula Vauxhall, bits like that, racing devolved into one-make racing. Formula 3 was a Delara. There was no other option. Um, Formula 3000 was Lola, then Delara. And so Montoya's Lola, which I lust after, you know, the guy did things which were unbelievable, but it's exactly the same as Delatraz's Lola, right? It's just different colour. So the, 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 the specialness kind of goes. We've had super tourists in our workshop, and they're so clever. They're so sophisticated that while you've still got all the original bits, brilliant. As soon as those bits start to die, and I think we're seeing that now on the circuit, it's very much more difficult to keep them running. So they were cheap, they were complete, they were usable, their grids were reasonable, and each piece in turn has affected the total. So now we're getting very poor grids. Do you think that, that what will happen there is the same what happened with Group C? Because I remember being at Donington for the first Group C GTP race, and there were actually only about three or four Group Cs, and there was a mix of other GTs and things thrown in, and the reliability was appalling, and the first few races were, oh, is this going to stick? But they got, it got to a critical mass where there was enough people doing it, probably enough parts, and you know, perhaps people building their own, fabricating their own bits, and it kind of worked for a while. Do you think that Super Touring, that could happen with Super Touring, or do you think they're just another step on in sophistication and that's beyond possible it can happen it's about will really the electronics when the ecus die you're going to have to reconfigure most of them are being reconfigured it's actually not that difficult but the mondeos that we had had octagonal shaft dampers right and when we spoke to coney why did you do that and the comment was because we could and so you know these just aren't bits you can nip down to you know, race parts or and, and just buy the, the replacements. They're very, very special things. I mean, the, the Renaults were made by Williams to F1 standards. So they were cheap. They were good. 
it worries me that it's been so poor now for what 18 months yeah that's probably fair and in fact actually away from the big events like silvers and classic always gets gets big feels but some of the other more far-flung events have been have been a struggle yeah Group Group C, if I'm just Group C's problem was it was undermined by the endurance legends and the other stuff. As soon as it was a you know a bigger, faster, new thing to play with, people seemed to drop the Group C's and they all went off and bought Peugeots or whatever your commoner garden shopping Peugeot. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, that is one of the the interesting things that the, the, the challenges that, that historic motorsport has and you know at one stage it's it was sort of talked about as a very cheap alternative and at the top level it's very expensive and then you get people who have very valuable cars and you start having so there's people who have replicas of the cars they've got because they don't want to race theirs and the the preparation standards involved the cars getting quicker than they ever were in period because of technology so there's all these challenges because if it, i think people think of historic motorsport as frozen in time but you're not just reaching into the past and pulling a car from 1965 is it you it's a car from that era, but with today's knowledge and, and technology and value and everything. Which is the probably the biggest problem historic motorsport faces. We, um, if, if you break it down to bits and pieces, okay, we can't not know what we know. We know more about stiffer is faster, lower is faster, shock absorbers are far more important. So all of this technology, it's incredibly difficult to police going on to really bizarrely early cars okay the second point is really about cost if you're doing lmp2 and really you can't do that as an old fart anymore you've got to be very very rich and you've actually got to be really quite good so people who would say um peter lovett who went and bought a secondhand 935 and put it on a trailer behind a motorhome and went and did real le mans that's gone and I can't ever see that coming back. So those kind of people now, I guess, are in historics. There's no other forum really for them, if that makes sense. Well, what, what do you make of it? Because obviously you follow it very, very closely. And it, it seems quite amorphous historic racing. I know that people know some of the big events, but there's lots of different governing bodies and clubs, should we say. And it, there always seems to be a lot of push and pull in terms of shaping it. And there's always some major debate going on about... You know, talking about whether replicas are allowed, that kind of thing. That there's always something going on that threatens to tear historic motorsport apart. Multifaceted question, yeah. Well, the first of all, I think we're talking about historic motorsport, but I mean that is huge. That's from there's a very there's a big difference in running a, a 250 GTO at Goodwood to running historic Formula Four that's nested in the HSCC meeting. You know, historic motorsport. One other thing, strengths of it is that it is broad. If you can't find something historic motorsport you like then you probably don't like motorsport. Like, <laughs> it's probably not for you because there is pretty much anything. But I think one of the, one of the problems, and, and Simon Pitts sort of mentioned it there, is where you draw the line in terms of how you allow, the, for want of a better word, development to take place. So some cars were incredibly unreliable in period for sometimes quite stupid minor reasons that you look at now and go, well, they need to do this. So I don't think anyone would object to saying, well, fix that because we'd rather have the car going round and seeing them than blowing up and putting them all in barns forever. But then where does that draw the line and go, well, it would go a bit better if we did this and a bit better. And we can't get those parts anymore. I remember talking to, to Mintex about brakes and they said, well, some of one of their challenges is to try and get for the historics is to get what they expect, but with a lot of materials are banned now or not, or, or they can't get hold of it. So they have to try and come up with a synthetic way of doing it. 
to, you know, to replicate what it was like in period, but they're going to they're gonna be better, of course they are. So is that okay? Because they've kind of had to do it. Um, so it's, I think I spoke to Simon about this a while ago. If you, if you ask 200 people in the historic paddock what, where the line should be, they'd come up with 200 different answers. Um, and unfortunately, because you've got so many clubs and organisers and series, there are lots of different answers. So you can kind of, whatever answer is closest to your one is, is, is where you go. I guess the problem is there is, you can't have a hard and fast line, can you? Because you're dealing with so many, you know, if you talk about historic motorsport as a genre, that's probably thousands of car types spread across decades and decades of, of running. But as a truism, the whole rules of historic racing can be done in two sentences. As it was, so it should be. That covers everything. And that can be qualified was if it was done legally and provably internationally in period, you can do it. If it wasn't, you can't. Those two sentences sh- are the, should be the bedrock. But commercial interests, money, the desire to win has has bent those two concepts so far. And I guess it also depends on the area of the car. Because if you're running a 1980 Williams or whatever, you can get on the phone to Patrick Head or whatever and, and he should be able to tell you. But if you're running a car that's 40 years earlier, chances are those involved aren't around and sometimes these cars aren't well documented so that question about provable because it's two ways you, you on the one hand you can't necessarily prove you can do something but also it's quite hard to prove you can't do no but, but the onus is always on the competitor to show that it happened and actually you'd be surprised how much is out there things like autosport even back then was very formula one centric but not to the level possibly that specialist publications are today so you still had mentions of smaller cars, you had pit and paddock, you had discussions. There was stuff out there. But now you don't need that because every Dolara is the same. Every Van Diemen's the same, right? So it was not like people every week were coming out with a new car they built in their shed and actually were quite competitive. That's gone. So, no, there is information out there should you want to find it. And often when people are really called, it's surprising how much turns up but i worked at ats and we had competent race cars once or twice we actually looked really rather good but when as a preparer we got the first brabham bt49 in the workshop your jaw just drops what were we doing right it's so much more competent it's so much more um intelligent because they had more money and they had gordon murray and yet martin o'connell another unbelievably competent race driver right as good as anybody i've seen goes to monaco in an ats and dusts everybody so uh, you know we weren't far away and what martin did was showed actually yeah they weren't but in the in the real detail we weren't close but i guess it is interesting as well if you look at any historic racing category Often it will reflect the the kind of competitive shape of the past, but often it won't as well. And you do see cars becoming dominant that weren't necessarily dominant in period. You do see cars that were very successful not quite being the the car of, of choice, don't you? My, my reaction to that is it, mixed depending on each context. So, for example, I was talking to Clive Chapman and Cloud's Team Lotus the other day, and we made the point that uh, pre-1960 Grand Prix cars, Tecmec, Scarab, not so much now, but a few years ago when Neil Corner had one, Aston Martin DBR4, Lotus 16, they, they, they were all abject failures in period. Absolutely awful cars that did nothing. Okay, they might have shown flashes here and there, 
Um, but but terrible. But but now they're you know, they're quick, and I quite like seeing them mixing it with the mid-engine cars because that's variety, um, and variety I think is one of the appeals of of historic racing as well. So that doesn't bother me. What does kind of start to get a bit concerning is when you've got say a field of historic touring cars where every car in one class is a Cortina, the other class every car is a Mini, and in a big class every car is a Falcon. So you've got three one make categories effectively happening, and that. That it doesn't look anything like a grid that you'd have seen in period. And and that's a problem because the cars you mentioned are the best cars. They have the best support system. They've had the most development. It's difficult not to be able to have those. The only way around that is for organisers to actually actively discriminate. Positive discrimination. You get extra points if you run a car that's off the wall. You know, Bruce McLaren raced in a Suzu Bellet in the, in against Cortinas. Now, no one in their right mind would go and find one. But there was a Grand Prix driver driving a different car. He wasn't last. So, yeah, I completely get your point. But that's really a money issue. I I think the last 15 years have seen the change. People used to buy cars because they wanted them fervently. They possibly had them on their bedroom wall as a kid. They always wanted to have one. Now, the prospective customer stands on the pit wall. What wins? One of those. I'll have one of those. And two engines. That's a shame, actually, because I've always said uh, if I ever own a Formula One car that I could race, which even if I did have the money, uh, my physical build would make that rather. But I'd like to have something a little bit esoteric and probably quite a bad car, actually. Because, uh, you know, you get something that's... Your collection of cars would be terrible. Oh, be brilliant. I'd like but to, brilliant. I mean, have an, have an Andrea Moda or an Eiffeland oh, or something. God. You know, just something that's a bit more... Unusual, because that's what I like to see. You know, if you go and watch a, a historic F1 race of that area and you have a Williams FW07 up front, it's like, well, that's nice, but I've seen that a lot. But I really like it when there's something... I remember being at Suzuka last year and they had a parade of cars and there was Hacker and his 98 McLaren and various good cars and I was sort of keeping an eye out the window. And then I saw an AGS... And I was like, "Oh, I'm going to go. I'm going to go and look at that." Just because you know, it was it was running on about two cylinders and desperately slow, but just because that was unusual, and that that's what appeals to me, which is why I like to see more unusual cars. And I think I I'd, I'd sort of lean. I know perhaps slightly odd taste, but I I can see why you'd want that sort of emotional connection to a car rather than just a, a more prosaic version of what's good, because that's more a contemporary motorsport approach, isn't it? Right, that's the best car. Okay, we'll go with that. Well, I think there is a creeping of contemporary motorsport thinking into, well, we've had some contemporary well, it, teams it, come across. Well, it is contemporary motorsport, JRT. really, isn't it? It, it, it is, yeah. It's, it's just with um, historic cars. Yeah, exactly. And and it's, again, you can't really, you know, I mean, Andrew Jordan, I was talking to him about, because uh, he'd probably have a different view on perhaps where the historics sits, although I think he enjoys driving the cars. But, you know, he said, well, I go out and test and I and I try different suspension settings and I try X and I try, work, try Z. I, of course I'm going to go and beat the guy that just puts his Cortina in the garage and then gets it out again for the next round. And so that's it, it's, it's a different mentality. I guess what you say, Simon, is that you, you it's the rules and what you allow to be. You know, where, where is the line of changing settings to developments and that kind of thing? The, 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 the cost of circuit hire is now so high that most organisers are afraid of losing people on the grid. So I think scrutineering has um, is getting poorer, not because the scrutineers can't do it, but because the organisers don't want to scare everyone off. So actually, I think that's um, counterproductive. The best series that we're involved with are actually those with the most stringent scrutineering. So you know that it's fair. 
And fee, you know, entry fees it, <clears throat> in the on the on the occasions I pay my own entry fee, when I'm paying more than ten pounds a minute. I have to think I can have quite a lot of fun for £10 a minute. Well, some of these big events now are, you know, they're, some of them closing on £1,000, you know, you know, 100 times more. And that's a bizarre amount of money. That's modern racing entries. But um, I don't want you to be ignored. Um, when in, in touring cars, the genius is that all the same stuff is hidden. Modern touring cars. So underneath the skin, we know they're pretty much the same car. But externally, you've got a Honda, kind of racing a BMW at the moment. Um, you've got, you know, an Astra. You've got uh, a Mercedes. To take Andrew Jordan's point, in 40 years' time, when someone hooks Andrew Jordan's BMW out of a barn and starts restoring it, and then they start developing that, are they racing Andrew Jordan's BMW? No, they're racing a facsimile. Well, I, I, to, 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 to tally to that is um, Ben Anderson went out in um, uh, Henry Mann's original Cortina. It's been restored to, it doesn't race, there's not even a roll cage in it. And it was soft and slow and he got out and he was, it feels like I'm driving a sort of Fabergé egg thing. I can't believe they raced this. If he was to jump into one of the Cortinas that runs at, say, Goodwood, one of the JRT cars or the X-Dynamics cars or whatever, he would think there was a completely different car, completely different driving experience. So then you're losing that link to, oh, this is what my heroes did for the purposes of competition. One of my customers uh, has, a, has a period teaser, um, a BMW, that was actually raced in the 60s. And it's so slow. It's embarrassing. It's floppy. I think it's great fun. But it's not competitive. And for some people, being competitive is more important than the originality. Well, yeah, so on that very point, I was going to bring up, so there's quite a stark example at last year's revival where you would buy your D, uh, blue DB4 GT and in the sort of shelter next door was a green DB4 GT, which is three inches lower to the ground, you know, and for all intents and purposes underneath, looked like a completely different spec. So not only you say, you know, it's a bit frustrating when you're paying this money, but when you're lining up as alongside a car like that, which to most people on the banks looks ostensibly the same, you know, it's surely that comes there comes a point where it's quite disenfranchising to be around that sort of development, that sort of differentiation between two similar cars. Without question, to come back to modern touring cars, it's like somebody. It's difficult to put this in a non BMW position, right? But it's like somebody coming out with a completely different, better car, and the organisers say, "No, it's okay. Carry on, guys." Quality of scrutineering, quality of technical control, I believe is fundamental for the future of historic motorsport. If we don't start getting, you know, really grasping the nettle, we're going to lose it because it's just becoming a generic, as you said, it's, it's a generic motorsport. So if you're going to have this many Cortinas, let's go buy Seat. Have one make Seat, gentleman drivers racing, right? If the F1's becomes more and more generic same engine same setup same everything else let's go and buy old Vauxhall lotuses have gentlemen you know the things that make historic special i believe are being edited out does that make sense the the big challenge with it is as you say during this line and you know use the example of if someone puts andrew jordan's bmw out of a, out of a barn it's always a barn obviously uh 40 years down the line uh, Will it still be his car? But I, I guess one of the first things now is if you said, right, a, a contemporary British touring car, in 40 years' time, if it's being raced, even if parts are changed, it should be 
as if it would have passed scrutineering and any legal checks if it was if it was in today i guess that's the the bar for it isn't it and i guess it's easier now when you've got more detailed regulations than you maybe once had so that i guess that's the the challenge isn't it no they they had very good regulations in period they had proper scrutineering ju- just as good and just as clever and competent people as scrutineer today but they're being distorted because of financial desires because of competitive desires that's no different to modern racing. Everybody's going to try and push the, the boundaries. But because of these other forces, cost of track hire, the need to put customers on the circuit, it, it's, it is incredibly – it's a very difficult balancing act. I'm glad I'm not involved in it. <laughs> but you're right. You know, if, you're, if you have – and we try, and as far as we can, to run, build legal cars – and you see a guy next to you, which is clearly not, it's very, very hard to bite your tongue. Um, I think I have a reputation being fairly outspoken, but mainly because it's, it's about the future. You know, The replica thing's a, different, a, a more complex issue. But when, if I get to the point of having grandchildren and I take them to the circuit, I'd love to be able to say that was Hawthorne's D-type, and it's special. And tragically, I think that's so difficult now. Yeah, I mean, that would be my preference too. But I, I don't – I think so long as they're to the right specs, there are certain cars. So, for example, the, well, the obvious one is the shark Nose Ferrari. There aren't any. I'd rather see a re- recreation racing as long as it's all done properly – because then that's that's something that history's lost that you're then recreating. But, but so, it can, again, define properly because it's new well, manufacturing techniques. As you were talking about, the you know, stiffness, rigidity is important. So all these, yeah, all these things. Yeah. And you're talking carbon fibre cars, you know, this is the carbon fibre layup. How do you how do you scrutinise that exactly? It's like hugely, uh, it's hugely complicated, isn't it? Which is why the FIA decided it's not historic in the definition. It's it's run by modern rules. It's determined by modern scrutineers. If you ring the historic department at the FIA for a car after 1990, they say, super, brilliant, nice to talk to you, but wrong department. You need down the hall. And, of course, the people down the hall, their concern is that the possibly underqualified people are driving the cars. So their thing is saying, you shouldn't be doing this. I think that's a really interesting point, actually, about the drivers. We should perhaps, perhaps talk about that because there are some – I'll take sort of what I'd call non-believers to historic racing sometimes – and if their interest is, say, for example, a Group C race or a historic F1 race where you've got maybe one or two guys that know what they're doing and the rest of the cars are effectively being driven a bit under par and they go, well, this I, I remember these cars being driven by Hans Stuck or Alan Jones or whoever it is, and they go away a bit disenchanted. Like, yeah, but you've got, to, you've got to look at where the quick guys are. You know, what are Simon, Gary, Martin, the young guys, Martin O'Connell, what are these guys all doing? So a 50 sports car race, well, these cars might not be the ones that you remember, but there are six or eight cars at the front that are absolutely on, on the edge. But I think that the, the more recent cars, there are probably fewer people that can access their performance um, and I think maybe you could make an argument, Simon's got an opinion on this, on having a super license for certain categories of historic racing where the car, these are seriously quick cars, some of them, and some of the, the levels of competence towards the back of certain fields is a little bit, a little bit scary. But again, to go back to modern touring cars, I would say at the front of the grid, you've got 10, 15 absolutely unbelievable drivers, probably some of the best in the world. 
but there's an awful lot of people on the grid who are there because they have the money to be on TV. So this is not unique to historics. The thing is, of course, in a modern touring car, if you're absolutely woeful, you're probably only second half off the pace, right? In historic, you can be 10, 15, 20 seconds off the pace. Well, also, you've got a mix of categories, often historic. So now they're all modern touring cars. So if you could put any one of those 30 cars on the grid... They're going to be within, I don't know, what do you reckon, Matt? How many tenths? There's going to be a few tenths within between them. A second can work. cover about 19 cars on a, on a good weekend. Yeah, exactly. So whereas if you took those number of historic cars, you might have, let's say you had a Derek Bell trophy grid where the quickest car is a T332 Lola F5000 and the slowest might be, I don't know, a classic F3 car or something. Even if they're driven properly, the speed differential will be massive. But if you've got a slow person in a slow car and a quick person in a quick car, the approaching speed is into the... World Endurance, Le Mans type stuff but it, on smaller tracks. But it's also about, because it's not purely that a good driver is quick and a bad driver is slow. You can have slow drivers who are safe, quick drivers who are a bit unsafe and vice, vice versa. Obviously, speed different, differences is, is a, it's a problem. But obviously, you know, you're talking about having a certain standard for certain levels and there are safety concerns with historic motorbikes. You take a modern touring car, so we keep talking about British touring cars. You can throw one of those into the wall. The safety standards are great. Historic cars, very, very different. And that, so that there almost needs to be, it's almost more pressing because you can have, you could have someone dangerous and a bit iffy racing around in BTCC. And they might cause some problems by driving into things, but they're not going to, that, that's not going to have wider consequences. Whereas in historic racing, you can, and we've seen some obviously very serious accidents go on. Generally, historic cars don't crash well. The FIA didn't want to grasp the problem of a super license because it's, it's in, in England, we are particularly scrupulous about giving licenses. Having done all the various steps, you've been a novice, you've been a national license holder, you've done the right number of races. That's not, the, not so in every country, not even in Europe. Um, so defining a super license was too complicated. But yes, I, I think there are some people who should not be in the kind of cars they're in. That said, they've paid the same entry fee, right? They've done the same scrutineering. They should be allowed every chance to exercise their cars and have the same amount of fun and the same amount of respect, right? They're just as deserving of their space on the tarmac as any of us. Provided they're safe. And, until the point it's proven that they're not. But can you not make that argument at the top of the grid? Because... In recent years, whether it's, you know, Goodwood having a slot on ITV and whatever, the influx of touring car drivers in particular into historic racing has been has been massive and that has brought with it some of the touring car style driving. You know, is it is it a point where, you know, as, as someone who specialises in historics and as someone who also restores and prepares these cars, if you've got touring car drivers, let's, you know, not use names, but if they're clipping wing mirrors, you know, nerfing nerfing body panels is that not uber frustrating for you it is because i think it brings our part of the sport down but if you get the really good guys ash sutton came and was staggering i i i think he's one of the best drivers in in the country today um i saw he got pinged for something at the weekend so maybe this is not the wrong time to say it but you i just thought he was fantastic didn't mark the car, was staggeringly quick, did everything I want to see my heroes doing. And you get some other guys who just bulldoze their way through. I believe, and I'm, I'm, I, I don't really want to go on, on too much on the record, but I think Goodwood have taken steps for some of the worst offenders now. They, they realise who they can trust uh, and who they can't. 
But yeah, it's massively, massively frustrating when these guys just push and shove. I understand why Good would do it, because they're trying to get people in the grandstand who probably have very little interest in everything else. It's a social weekend. They get to see John Alasey and they see Gerhard Berger and they get to see Ash Sutton and they get to see all these other guys. But yeah, they're kind of coming in and distorting things. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I think I think it's the, the it's the policing, isn't it? Whether it's driving all the cars. In in defence of some of the touring car drivers, like one of the best well races I've ever seen was uh, the St Mary's Trophy in 2015, where you had Andrew Jordan, Gordon Shedden, and Frank Stippler, and they were inches apart for most of the race. And it was it was they were properly on the limit that you could see the cars dancing around, which is another appeal I think that we've yeah we've perhaps not talked about as much is you can see them working so hard they can take they could take different lines, but it was all yeah it was all fair it was a fantastic race until Tom Christensen ruined it with the Ford Fairlane Thunderbolt that came blatting <laughs> past everyone about five minutes to go, but that but so they so the the yeah. Some of the touring cars, guys can do it, and I know that Matt Neal, for example, he's you know he's he's you're a fan of his, aren't you, Simon? Yeah, he comes in. So the the class acts still come out. I think that's the point. The class acts are still class. You know, you you watch a British touring car race, and you know that some cars are not going to get damaged, and you also know as you turn the thing on on, on Sunday afternoon, probably some are. So, and and these people exist in the historic world too. There are some people you can run absolutely together within an inch and you know that they know what you're doing and vice versa there's there's that element of yeah crack on guys and there's some guys you just think really um and that doesn't matter if you're doing classic formula ford or you're doing goodwood you still get the same kind of definition of person well we'll very briefly break away from uh, from talking about historic motorsport now to talk about something a little bit more futuristic with an update on the progress of Autosport IGP Manager team. Of course IGP Manager the game is available on iOS and Android. You can see our sign up link and you can see how you can do. And yeah, it has been I will admit a very very challenging first season for the Autosport team and I've been under a lot of pressure as team principal no more so than after the Singapore Grand Prix where we qualified on pole position. Very aggressive approach to the race. There was a small miscommunication which led to an unnecessary pit stop with one lap to go. So we basically finished nowhere in the race. We weren't going to win. We were destined, however, for our first points in ninth place, which was okay. Interestingly, the car is stronger on qualifying pace than race pace at the moment. So uh, this is something we are working on, but we're making progress. So actually, we took the positives, as they say, from the Singapore performance. But then... Off we went to Japan, the most recent race. Qualified sixth, pretty decent actually, we're we're happy with that. But it didn't go so well early in the race, shuffled back down to ninth place, so it looked like we might slide back. But aggressive drive from from our driver, trying to carry the speed through the corners, a little bit defensive on the straights, and that helped us to hold position. Stayed on softs, no errors made held back some of the the, uh, the the boost for later in the race uh, in order to defend and actually we managed to come home with points in sixth place and that's a fantastic result first points for the team top six things are really coming on and we are we are kind of starting to to learn how to do this we need to become a consistent points finisher now but yeah we consider this to be auto sports team answering the critics now the fact that we're many, many, many points behind the the leading contenders in this very competitive league. There's some great managers in our in the Autosport IGP Manager League. Uh, 
you could say we've got a long way to go, but yeah, we've been celebrating and a great boost in confidence. We've still been developing all the things we can do on the on the car, improving the factory, which is gradually uh, gradually getting better. So hopefully, going into next season, we'll be in, in stronger shape. The objective now is points in the last few races and really proving that we uh, we are worthy of being in the company we're in. As I said, some strong managers in this league. If you fancy a go at IGP manager, and you can find out, uh, it's a little bit more challenging than uh, perhaps you think from hearing some of our our tales of our escapades then you can download it on ios and on android like i say i'll sign up link in the in the episode information you can you can use that but it's it's a it's a mega game quite deep and if it was easy it wouldn't be quite so appealing lots of decisions to be made we've been putting out polls on social media on twitter on the at autosport account for where we should focus on developing our facilities our car and that kind of thing and we're improving staff etc all the time so yeah it's uh it's a game that will keep you coming back so yeah igp manager available on ios and android what do you do if you've got a customer who wants to maybe win a bit more than enjoying period if i if i bring you I don't know, my Dome Zero RL and say, well, can you make it a bit better in corners or whatever, even if it's not quite right? How, how do you, how do you sort of talk, talk them down from going too far? Because obviously you're running a business as well. And this is always the, the push and pull, isn't it? I think if, if, without giving ourselves too many airs and graces, if you've come to us, then you've come to us knowing the place you're, you're coming to. Um, I, if a customer has a realistic, a realistic expectation, you can work with them and you can normally over time make most guys a bit better. If they just come and say, basically I want to cheat, then you're not a customer that I really want to be involved with because once you start cheating, it's a slippery slope. I'll just do that. One of the worst phrases in historic motorsport is we're doing it because everyone else does. And, and we all use that phrase. Well, I'm doing it because that's the accepted way. Often it's wrong but the whole paddock has drifted that way and it's difficult to be an outlier. If on that note, hypothetically at, at the weekend, someone, you know, who wanted to get into historic racing, you know, had had a budget together, they had the Mustang or the 289 Cobra. What do they aim for if they want to be competitive? There's a few people have done that. I think the thing is you go and find a good co-driver. Um, the guy who bought the, is it the Pearly Cobra? And has Ben Mitchell sharing it with him. Ben's bringing him along really nicely. They're doing longer races. They're getting track time. And I try and get all the guys who come to us with, start at the, do, do your apprenticeship. You know, buy a historic Formula Ford. Get your head around it. Go and have fun. And then step up. The guys who worry me are the people who come in, they do four races in a classic Formula 3 car and go and buy a Formula 1 car. And you think, I couldn't have done that, right? So I really don't think you should. I say England is particularly good because our motorsports authority really do make sure you've done, you've served the apprenticeship. It's not the same everywhere. And you can see that. And and that's that's difficult, isn't it? Because you can understand why... Why people want to win, etc. Why people want to, do it. and you say, obviously, you, you kind of put a hard line out. Like, if you if you want to cheat, don't come to don't come to us. But again, because there's that kind of sometimes there is there is a bit of a, a wavy line, shall we say, rather than a hard. I mean, maybe you think there isn't. Maybe you think it is. It is clear. But how do you how do you de- deal with that? Because your interpretation of what's correct and right might be slightly different from the the next guy. Uh, that's absolutely correct. And so that's why we should have better scrutineering. So that a third party stands up and yeah. says, no, you've gone too far. 
or yeah, crack on. That's that's fair. You're, you're absolutely right. Sub- subjective opinion is in our famous two hundred people in the paddock. Everybody has a different view of what's allowed. So. Going back, British Touring Cars is a good reference actually because it's very vibrant and it's in your face and you can see it and stuff. They have scrutineers, they have a whole truck full, and they are scrupulous. In modern Formula One, you know, there's a huge number of people with this incredibly sophisticated flat patch that you roll the car on, so there's no hiding place. We don't have anything like that at the moment in historic racing, and I believe it ultimately historic racing suffers. Once people know. It's human nature. Once you can push a bit, then you push a bit harder. And then you push a bit harder again. And if each time you draw a line in the sand, the guy to the side of the land st- line steps back, you move the line. It's, it's not rocket science. Well, we're going to get to a point where we sort of see how far the line's gone because one of my favourite races, historic races, was uh, 2013 Revival, uh, the TT where it was the wet weather, but in, in the dry, you had the Lister Costing Coupe, which was a flavour of the month. It, would, it was, you know, super, super fast. Last year's revival, that's now a mid-pack car because it's incrementally, you know, each year you see other people are making performance games and to keep chase, more and more developments going into it. Without question. When I, when I first got the opportunity to drive 2-1-2 at the revival, we went away, we did a bit of testing, didn't really change anything, and we were qualifying on the third row. We're now struggling to be on the tenth row, and the car hasn't changed at all. I, I, I remember um, Martin Brundle drove that car in about '99, and I think he did. I think he did about the first in practice because unfortunately Gary Pearson crashed it afterwards. Um, Martin did a sub one minute twenty eight, which at the time was unbelievably quick for the TT. And now they're all. I mean, the race pace at the front is low twenty sixes. Um, and uh, last year, uh, Ash Sutton's Cortina lapped as quickly as the Nigel Corner E-Type that won at the first revival meeting in 98. So that's how fast. But so not all categories have done that. Some categories have actually stayed fairly consistent. I think, I think so I'd say, the pre-66 Grand Prix cars at that times have, have not gone stratospheric. Mainly because I think of the tyres, right? They're, they're at a point now where even if you get more, you're actually, the tyres are the limiting factor. The problem with the Cortina and Lotus Alain is there's not much left that Colin Chapman and Harry Mundy would recognise. They are so changed. Uh, and there's no scrutineer standing up loud enough to say, guys, you've gone too far. You're absolutely right. And, and I know that I believe Good would have done it, and I know the FIA have. They've got a comparison of the performance increase at Goodwood, and it's pretty scary. Yeah, so again, it's part of the differences that drive our sport. We've talked about some of the problems and challenges of historic motorsport, which most of which come from its success. Should we say success breeds uh, breeds problems? But just in terms of uh, of the the joy of it and the challenge, I mean, to be a to be one of the best historic racers in the world, is it the same challenge as being a good racing driver in contemporary machinery, or that, do, you, do you think it's a slightly different skill set and mindset? Uh, the, the skill set, I think, is different because we can't do some of the things that modern cars allow you to do. Um, John Fenning, who used to be um, Willen Seatbelts, once said to me, he said, you're being granted some of the greatest opportunities to drive some of the absolute best cars that have ever been invented. Just occasionally stop quantifying and just enjoy it. Because in a racing car, 
no matter what kind of car, you're thinking, I've got more power than him. He's got better brakes than me. I've got better turning than him. You're always quantifying. So, good name drop. Um, um, one of my customers had a Ferrari um, um, 312 PB, and it was Ronnie and Schenken's car that had won 3,000K races in the year they raced it. And actually leaving the pit lane at Donington, I thought, bugger me, Ronnie sat here, right? Ronnie held the steering wheel. Ronnie moved this gear lever. And for half a lap, it was just let the moment wash over you. And at the end of the lap, right, okay, why doesn't it do this? Why doesn't it do that? Why doesn't it do the other? So, you know, driving Jimmy's Lotus 21, driving Jimmy's Lotus 48, these were phenomenal moments for a guy from the sticks in the middle of England who never thought you'd even, I, I never dreamed I'd be allowed to do the things I've been allowed to have a go at. And that's special to me. That's not necessarily the same motivation for everybody in the paddock. But yeah, these are wonderful cars. You can almost think in the 48, as you pull up in the pits, that Colin would squat down beside you and lean in. You know, it's it's gets me going anyway. I got quite interested in the draw in the driving or perceived driving difference between, let's say, cross ply, no downforce car, and a and a, a slicks and, and downforce. Because I think oh, the tires are huge. I think the whole the whole yeah, the tires are massive. The tire of the tires is enormously different. Because um, I think there are two for the sort of non-driver. There are two assumptions. You make one or two assumptions. You either go for the you kind of, you could go for the, the old farts approach, which is it's much harder back then because you can see the cars moving around. Now they're just all on rails, da da da. That approach, and then there's the other one, which is well, they're much faster now. You've got to be much more precise with your turning because you don't you only get with downforce, you only get the one chance. Right? You, you've basically got to be that much more precise with a, an older car. You can kind of change the attitude of the car with the throttle and all the rest of it through. But I, so I, I asked a few drivers about this people people that perhaps done done both people like Tom Christensen, Anthony Reid. Um, yeah, some of the guys had, had, had driven both, and it was well. If you're on the limit in either, it's hard. Like if you if you're on the limit in a car that you can change that, you don't, you don't want to be doing that. So if you've got it absolutely right in in the older car, you haven't got anything. You've got nothing left to change that to do the car with. So it, it's it's it happens slower, but to get them, it's like anything. It doesn't matter whether you're racing an MX5, a Cortina, a Group C car, or a modern car. Like to be the best at it. You've, you've you've got to be in that outer limit, and any car is hard on the limit. It was if well again moments that sort of clarity. Um, Frank Sittner had a DB3S, and around Gerrard's at Mallory, you could actually get all four tires floating, and you could turn the steering wheel, and it made no difference to what you're doing. <laughs> and I remember doing this and thinking, it's a long corner, Gerrard's. Well, it so is. You can do that it's for a while. worth more than my house. What the hell are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> um, but you're right. If you if the the very best. Tom Christensen and his Audi at Le Mans in the middle of the night was one piece. I think you'd be hard pushed to work out where Tom Christensen stopped and the Audi started. It was a, 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 a consistent whole. And that's a bit arty-farty. But I think that's what you aspire to, that you and the car work together. Almost any racing car that I know of won't do something it can't do if that makes sense. So they're great up to the point where you ask it to do something and the car just says, no, we can't go there. So it's getting to the point together. I think maybe modern racing cars allow you to get closer to the limit before you have the, the moment. So, for example, GT3 cars, 
which is a, a, a big thing around the world now. You know, lots of manufacturers build cars. Really, those the, the, the new evolution of cars are built for the amateur part of whatever combination because the pros are all within a tenth, whereas the amateurs might be two, three, four seconds off. So if you can get the amateur as close to the pro as you can, as consistent as you can, you'll 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 win the race. And so I think probably uh, you know when Ben you, Simon very kindly helped us uh, do a Lola track test last year. And one of the, one of the cars was the T seventy, and one of Ben's comments was that is you can't you, you can't hustle it to go. You've got to let it take its line, take its set. Don't surprise it, and then you can get into a flow and it's fine. But if you try and manhandle it around and are aggressive with it, it, it does it doesn't want to know. And I think that's perhaps that again that's a tire thing, of course, as well, isn't it? But the the GT three is a really good example, actually. A modern GT three, every single part of the car is homologated. You can't change it. Yet it's bizarre. You can go and get a load of Cortina that's 50 years old and change it almost so it's the shape's there but underneath everything is gone so that's and in gt3 there's incredibly scrupulous scrutineering so that's part of the uh, of the deal any any tire has to be turned on and any tire has to be you have to get the car to the point where you're using all that the tire will give you i think that it's very easy to overdrive the smaller cars, actually. You know, you can actually just ask too much and you just don't get it back. The bigger cars, if you do that, you're having an accident. So you probably don't get that, or hopefully you don't get that close to it. An interesting point of the tyres, actually, because when we did our supplement last year, we did, we did it with Dunlop. One of the things they were really keen to point out was trying to keep the tyres as close in terms of grip level, because obviously they've had the same thing of like I was saying about with the brakes or where they can't use certain chemicals and they have to do different things or whatever and they said it was quite an interesting thing to go to their engineers who are normally going right we want the LMP2 tire to be better or to go right you need to do the same lap time but with this different mix of like this is the your recipe is this but you need to come up with the same uh, lap time um, and they're very I mean you could argue that that's their part of the market so of course they would say that but the, but their argument was if you start loading up the historic cars with wider rubber stickier rubber all the rest of it you're going to put first of all you increase speed so you've got the safety problem again that we were just talking about and you've also got um, you start breaking components because suddenly you're putting more forces through the suspension and so tyres is one of those areas where if you, I think you, you do get a limiting factor that stops cars going even quicker than they are at the moment. And the danger is if you do remove that limit, you change the cars. Because one of the reasons people like the historic cars is because I guess, I guess the, the best way to compare a generic historic car to, say, a modern car is like the window, the dynamic window in which a historic car operates will often be bigger than, say, like a 65 Formula 1 car versus a modern F1 car. The, the sort of dynamic window is bigger, so it's easier to see. It's easier to enjoy and understand. If you, you lose that, you lose some of the appeal of, of story because people want to see Ronnie Peterson sliding through woodcut. I guess that's the, the classic thing, which you can do on those sorts of tyres. You couldn't do it on a modern tyre. Yes, but like um, Alonso once said, if you want to see a sliding, you're going to have to give us points for it. In a historic car, slide too much and it's slow. You're, you're aware now. We know more. We know that big slip angles don't actually make you faster. Right? It's terribly... Um, um, showy and it's very good for people to watch but there's a there's a, a line between how much sliding and how much grip and how much forward thrust you're generating and that that's not a historic issue that's the same i guess in um 
GT3 touring cars. Well, by definition, what, anything going sideways is going the wrong way, isn't it? It, it is. You, what you scared, want to go forward. It shocked sense. me watching Le Mans was when the group, the GT3 cars let go, the, when the Corvette let go in the Porsche curves, there was no, from the outside, one minute it's absolutely normal, the next minute it's in the wall. There was no transition that I could see. It went so fast. So having the modern ability, and these guys are extraordinarily good, that can keep the car at that limit for that length of time and not crash is way beyond my uh, comprehension. Just going back to what we were talking about earlier, you mentioned some of the cars you've raced. Is there anything that is there kind of a, a holy grail car you'd love to have a have a go in one day? Yeah. Um, I think possibly it's slipping away now. I'd like to drive a 917. It's the only car on my bedroom wall. I, I've driven every single other one. And a 917, don't even have to race it. I just, I'm quite happy just to have a go. Oh no, come on, race it. I want to see you racing one. <laughs> but I've, I've said that, you know, if somebody gave Leo and I a 917 and let us have it for a year, you'd make them good, right? They're only, they're so expensive. The parts are so expensive. And the, I, I'm, whether the value of the car has increased the prices, I don't know. But it's one of those things that your heroes drove. I'm going to have to ask you to be more specific. We'll get onto this when we do our 917 podcast. It's a big thing I've got there. But when you say a 917, which one? A K, a Langheck, a 30? No, a wire. A wire, golf car. No no bits, no Le Mans special. Okay, just, 917K. Yeah, yeah just yeah. drive it. Um, I've been fortunate to run some really good guys. And when you hear um, Redmond, just swinging his legs on the pit wall, talking to you about a 917. Again, the hairs go up on the back of your neck. The These were proper heroes. And if it went wrong, you weren't going into the same bed. And, and that's what people don't appreciate today. So historic racing has generated a huge amount of opt-outs of modern safety. They have to, to have the cars being someone like, like they are. But when... To come back to the, the, the comment, you know, historic cars don't crash well. The thought of crashing a 917, you feel... The, well, the first you'll know about it is when your toes are touching the barriers. Well, yes, as your legs are coming back yeah. towards you. And yet, remarkably few were crashed in period. That's really staggering. So either the drivers knew and just never, ever got there, or they're terribly stable or, or whatever. But Brian Redmond tells the story of him spinning three times at 180 miles an hour at Spa. Um... And he told us the story. And we said, well, why Why do you continue? He said, because behind me, there was a queue of people wanting my drive. They weren't having it. So uh, d- different dynamics. And and as I said earlier, it's, it's part of being allowed to sit where your heroes sat, to find out why they did what they did, what they were feeling. And if you can modify a Cortina to a point where it's no longer anything like that, I said, go and buy Sayers. Let's have a one-mate championship. Just to finish off, I guess the next uh, big historic meeting in, uh, in, in the UK is the Silverstone Classic, 26th to 28th of July. Obviously, the Silverstone Classic, a huge, uh, a huge event. Uh, everything from Formula One cars, sports cars. Well, that's what, what, what's there to get excited about there, Kev? Well, for me, the general appeal of the Classic is its breadth. Now, we're talking about his, historic motorsports as breadth, and you can pick whatever you like. But they, you know, the, Cla- the Goodwood has a 1966 cut-off for the members' meeting. It's 72, I think. Um, but with, with the Classic, it's all the way up from pre, pre-war cars all the way up to um, Super Touring or Group C, 
Um, There's even like the, the endurance legend. Yeah, so endurance that we, I the mean, DBR9 from my uh, youth. <laughs> well, uh, but isn't that, that, I mean, that's both brilliant and ridiculous at the same time. Was it Silverstone last year and the dusk race was that, that event? And I was at Le Mans when those cars were running. And it did, if you close your eyes, like, I'm, I'm, I'm back at Le Mans from five years ago. So I think that's the thing, you know, you, you've got such a, and uh, you've got basically anyone in historic racing is there. So you know that there are going to be good drivers in every grid. There are loads of different cars, single-seater sports cars, touring cars. It's it's just, as I say, if you can't enjoy a race at Silverstone Classic, then motor racing probably isn't for you. Absolutely. It's the breadth. Um, Goose, who run the event, go the extra mile to really work to get the so a to invite the right organisers. The organisers get better grids than they do pretty much anywhere else. I think that's a large partly uh, in 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 to a great extent because of the take up of the English in historic motorsport. But it's everything for everybody. You can go and walk around the sideshows. That that you you can't be bored. You really can't, and that's special. Well, that's what it should should all be about. I think the. The variety is probably one of the biggest appeals of historic motorsport, isn't it? Both within classes isn't it? and across the board. So just to see so much happening when we're so used to seeing a, a grid of 30 identical cars and then 30 similar but identical cars and the, the next one, it's, it's, it's great. I, I think for the, the, we get a lot of complaints about contemporary motorsport. Contemporary motorsport is going away. There are certain things that people don't like about it. And, but that, a lot of that is not going to change. We're not going to suddenly have a full on cars that are going sideways. and all the rest of it. But if you want... Loud racing cars go to a historic event. If you want cars that go sideways, go to a historic event. If you want cars multi-make, you don't like single-make, go to a historic event. All the stuff that no longer or, is, or has been reduced in contemporary motorsport for all sorts of reasons, like you know, cost and all the rest of it, go, go, to a historic, go to a historic race event because what you're looking for will be there. Even They smell different. Right, the, that's true. They do, yeah. Right? You know, it, it it has as a tactile event. Modern racing doesn't even get close. It, it's by comparison sterile. I think it, in many cases, artificial. We the 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 things they have to do in British touring cars to to not have one car win, right? You know, reverse grids, different tires, all to keep mixing up the pot. Well, you get that in theory in almost every race in historics. And it is so open and accessible. Like we're, you know, as employees of autosport, we're meant to sort of have a certain ne- a level of motorsport knowledge. But you can go into, you know, a garage and see a Fraser Nash. And I personally, you know, I'm 23. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have a clue about, you know, maybe it's BMW parts coming from wartime reparations. Maybe I do know. But then you can go and speak to owners and they're so accessible and you, you come away and you learn so much. And if that means, you know, five or six people go and bury their heads in a few Wikipedia pages or, you know, buy a book, read up about it, then it's well worth doing because eventually there'll come a time where, you know, I'm hosting this podcast and... Never. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there'll be, there'll be, you know, the people of 10, 15 years, we've got to get them as, you know, hyped up about, you know, the E-types, the Cobras, the 250 GTOs, short wheelbases. Well, and and access to the cars as well as the drivers. Like, you can go and, you know... it, it, like, at, the, at the British Grand Prix, there, I think there is a historic F1 outing, isn't there? I bet you'll get a darn sight closer to a Williams FW8 than you will to um, Mercedes W10. I mean, there are there are lots of reasons for that, but you know, go go and have a look. You, you can you can see more, you can smell more. Um, it's, it's definitely worth well, worth going. I think a degree of openness is is good. And actually, being able to look at the cars and, see, and even just and just see differences between, even if you don't, even if you couldn't 
explain the first thing about suspension geometry. At least if you can look at two cars, maybe without parts of space, you could look and say, oh, I see, that's different. And that's what people like. To, even if they don't understand what the differences mean, at least there's there's differences. But in, 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 the, in the pre-war, where you see sort of an animal car against a Bentley... Right, and one looks like it could be parked inside the other one. This is fantastic. It's different, and but there's something for every taste. And if you want to buy the book, of course, you can walk into the infield, and there'll be a bookseller selling you that book. It's it's a special event in England. It's one of I think probably the. It's so different to Goodwood. I don't see it as a competitor. I agree with that. It's it's a different taste entirely. But I think it's one of the five big events in the world. I mean, Good, Goodwood and Silver and Classic, the first two meetings that go in my diary every year. They're, they're, they're the first two and everything else sort of moves around there. Yeah. Well, this year's one, yeah, 26th to 28th of July, Silverstone Classics, that's coming up. And if your appetite has been whetted by this podcast, then it's well worth a visit to that event. Also, we'll have one of our occasional historic racing supplements in the Autosport magazine issue, released on Thursday the 25th of July, so just ahead of the Silverstone Classic. And of course, we could go on for hours on this podcast, but uh, all the good things do have to come to an end. Thanks very much, Simon Hadfield, Matt Hugh, and Kevin Turner. Do check out autosport.com for all the latest from the world of Formula One and the rest of motorsport and our plus subscriber area for in-depth features on all manner of topics. Autosport magazine out every Thursday, of course, with endless coverage of, of historic racing under Kevin Turner's uh, leadership. Do check out Sister Titles, F1 Racing Magazine out monthly, motorsport.com and Motorsport News out every Wednesday. And if you enjoy this podcast and you're not already subscribed, please feel free to, available from the usual podcast suppliers. Normally we release a podcast every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Also Sport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you ready to lose weight the easy way? Get Nutrisystem, the proven plan that's worked for millions, and it will work for you, too. You get your breakfasts, lunches, dinners, and snacks delivered right to your door. Delicious foods that are ready in minutes, now featuring hearty inspirations meals that control hunger for up to five hours, high in protein, and bigger than ever. Exactly what you need to feel full, satisfied, and energized as the weight comes off. The secret is the break 
breakthrough science of Smart Adapt, personalized to your metabolism and created to help you break through plateaus. Get your plan for as little as $10 a day. Order Nutrisystem today and start losing weight right away. Millions of people have lost weight on Nutrisystem. You can too. Go to nutrisystem.com/new right now and get a special offer. Just go to nutrisystem.com/new to get started. Expect to lose an average 1 to 2 pounds a week. Offer restrictions apply. See website for details. Sports Social Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.